Hello and welcome. You're listening to episode 39 of the CAAV podcast. In this episode, we're going to be taking a detailed look at the Queen's speech, which sets out the government's legislative agenda for the next parliamentary year. I'm joined once again by the Secretary and Advisor to the CAAV, Jeremy Moody. Welcome, Jeremy. Now, before we start talking about the individual bills, which may have an impact on the professional work of members, what's your overall assessment of this year's Queen's speech? This is really the first session in this parliament, two and a half years into this parliament, when the government has had the opportunity to lay out a a full legislative programme without being rocked by the issues of managing the immediacies of Brexit or the challenges of pandemic without a parliament really sitting physically at all. And so we have two and a half years of this government has gone, the prospect of an election perhaps in two years' time. This is the the session in which they've laid out now a programme of 38 bills in the Queen's speech yesterday, in which uh, this is their legislative programme. They're looking in the, at this in the context of the larger framework of the economy, of the cost of living, of uh, war in Ukraine, and all the consequences of that. They are, the, those form the matrix of this, and we'll see more government action and policy on those fronts. But what we had in the House of Lords, in the speech delivered by Prince Charles, was the legislative work, the bills that are going to go through Parliament, and indeed, on the face of this, keep them all very busy for the coming months. And one of the phrases we've heard a lot over the past few years is this government agenda for levelling up. Uh, And that's one of the bills that was uh, discussed in the Queen's speech, uh, levelling up and the regeneration bill. What do you pick out from that? Uh, Firstly, to pick out that while there are parts of this which are UK-wide, this is essentially a bill for England. There are a number of aspects that are much broader than is relevant for professional work, partly as the government discovers what levelling up might mean. Uh, We had the white paper, and now we're moving into legislation. Uh, I understand that the bill will enshrine a number of targets for levelling up. This this whole process of trying to um, bring the more depressed areas of the country and the regions up to the economic output and social life of, of the best parts of the UK. Um, the pieces that are most relevant in this to most members in England are the reforms around planning, but there are proposals for further devolution deals, uh, as we have seen in Cornwall or for Greater Manchester and the West Midlands, uh, for every part of England. And we are looking then at uh, proposals for strengthening uh, processes around all of that. Uh, so what does this mean with regards to the planning system? Frankly, the jury, I think, has to be out on this. We had a radical white paper on planning, and by this I really mean planning for housing development more than the wider planning of, of development control, uh, back in August 2020. The That was very much aimed at delivering the 300,000 houses a year that we've been said for 20 years to need to house a growing population. It was something that became politically very controversial as as, as house prices clearly indicate that people want to live in areas that don't want new development. And that, after the Cheshire and Amersham by-election, led to the the amendment of the 300,000 houses target 
such that the increase was now to be channeled into the larger cities. What we now have is Michael Gove, as the Secretary of State here, very much reducing the emphasis, easing back on the emphasis on the 300,000 houses. He is shying away from viewing it as a hard target. He is moving towards having local communities have much more say in what housing is where. Uh, Some of that is perhaps more expected now to be in the Midlands and the North rather than in the greater southeast. He is very strong, though, on a number of other aspects that were in that planning white paper of 2020. The first, and it is, is, is drawn from the work of the Building Better, Building Beautiful Commission, and work of people like Roger Scruton and the like, looking to improve the design of housing and its setting, the context, looking to have places, and the government will talk freely about looking to have beauty. It's looking at the infrastructure, it's looking at democratic involvement and the engagement of immediate local people with the proposal of going down to street votes on people's housing extensions and, and, and perhaps new housing. And it's looking at, in that sense, again, of neighbourhood. So those, those, is, those have been Michael Gove's themes. So we expect to see the design code and we wait to see uh, with the trials that are being run on that as to how that will work through, how much does it add to cost of building and the pressures that are on that. We have a proposal for a levy which is intended to replace both community infrastructure levy, currently applying in about half the districts in England, and also, my guess is much, but perhaps not all, of Section 106 and allied type agreements to fund infrastructure. Some of the briefing suggests that that is where the money for affordable housing will come from, possibly now no longer an obligation on the development, but with money transferred to local government to deliver affordable housing through its own its own abilities resourced by that. Uh, that was proposed in the white paper as a national levy, so and with a national threshold above which it would be charged, which would clearly impose more, more levy on higher value areas. The paperwork yesterday rather suggests that this might be a locally set levy. So there's quite a lot more to understand about this. There is always this sense in a lot of the policy discussion here that development isn't a cash cow with almost unlimited potential without understanding that we have many different development markets, not all of them able to offer particularly rich pickings for such a levy. And those may be the areas where the government may most want development. So I think this is always a very difficult and complicated area. It's also looking at standardising, simplifying the process for local plan making so that it's faster and also much more digital involvement around all of that. So whether this adds up to anything that really delivers the 300,000 houses, whether the greater neighbourhood engagement may actually prove to be the tool for NIMBYs rather than a means of using beauty to unlock new development, whether it prejudices the economics of development in some or many parts of the country, I think is entirely a matter for us to try to work out in the coming months. And what else is included in in relation to the environmental impact assessments? Now, this is an interesting area. 
because this is one of the aspects of environmental policy, and it was flagged in papers from DEFRA uh, over the last couple of years, and particularly in March, which is that now outside the European Union, we are no longer bound by the European Union's rules for environmental impact assessments. With all the sensitivities today, we will need environmental impact assessments, but they they can now, and this is what the, the bill will propose, be uh, set to meet English conditions. Uh, so a very high-profile part of this is the role of the great crested newt, uh, possibly scarce in Europe, but we always seem to be able to find them in this country. And I think you will see different priorities for species in environmental impact assessments as this develops, quite possibly the hedgehog and the vole, really rather than the newt. We also expect it to be clearer at the beginning as to what's to be done for an environmental impact assessment. So again, the endeavour, we'll see whether it works, the endeavour to make the whole process simpler and more straightforward with, with it being clearer where decisions will be. So that is perhaps the one area in this bill that flows for directly out of the use of post-Brexit powers. And let's turn our attention now to the Renters' Reform Bill. Um, this is proposing some changes to the private let sector. Yeah, I think it's worth seeing this as part of a much larger picture in which the government for some years now has been bearing down on the private let sector. Go back a decade or more, and the government saw the private let sector as an unalloyed good thing. It produced flexibility in the economy for people to move between jobs. Uh, it was an alternative investment for people with pension needs. And then somewhere in the middle of the last decade, the issues turned. And we saw this first in tax legislation with the uh, phasing out of relief or uh, phasing out of recognition of mortgage interest costs as a cost of uh, letting out. We've seen it with additional stamp duty land tax and allied taxes. Uh, we've seen the higher rate of capital gains tax on residential disposals. We have seen then with the manifesto of the government in 2019, the commitment to abolish Section 21 notices and shortholds, a radical undoing of the flagship of the Thatcher government, the 1980 Housing Act, introducing shortholds precisely with the ability to give landlords the confidence that they could regain possession, so giving them the confidence to let. With now more tenants being in let property, with families wanting more security, the government is responding to the electoral imperatives that that brings of people who are not in a position to buy and trying to provide them with more security. So alongside that, what the government is proposing is that there be more grounds for landlords to be able to recover possession and also that possession be swifter to achieve where there are accumulated rent arrears or other significant breaches of the, the tenancy agreement. It's imposing the decent home standard as a requirement, a legal requirement on private landlords. And currently it's thought that about a million houses fall short of that standard. So that's quite a significant thing to be dealt with alongside everything else to do with energy efficiency standards and the other increasing obligations on being a landlord. We have seen the private let sector, which grew very substantially until 2019. We've seen it fall by quarter of a million houses in the last two years. 
that process seems to me to continue, which can only drive rents up, can only make it harder for people to find rented accommodation. And of course, we're seeing it move housing into holiday lets as an alternative way of managing it, again, putting pressure on the housing that many people need. So this is a complicated area. I rather see the government here as trying to manage the symptoms of not building enough houses rather than actually striking to the root of it, the issue we discussed just now about planning. And another one of the main topics that was covered in the Queen's speech is the whole issue around energy and that transition to a cheaper, cleaner and more secure energy supply. Um, There is talk of an energy bill. What did you take from, from, from the comments relating to the energy bill? I think this is a massive work in progress. We had just the other week the British Energy Security Strategy, very much a snapshot of some things that have been done, plans that are in mind, work that's in hand, uh, not a fully rounded approach, but all this is given vastly more emphasis by the consequences of war in Ukraine. But before that, the very strained gas market, uh, all this is putting a need for more reliance on renewable energy, accelerating the programme of moving towards net zero in 2050 on this front. And that drives very powerful imperatives for more renewable generation, for enlargement of the capacity to transmit energy around the country, and also for energy efficiency. Those are very powerful drivers in this. And this bill is a next step in all that framework. It's looking at how you set a legislative framework that will attract investment in carbon capture uh, usage and storage. So we take carbon out of production, out of uh, electricity generation. We move it and and store it, let us say, under the North Sea or elsewhere. Uh, It's looking at, um, again, providing more of a framework for the development and so over time the cheapening of heat pumps as substitutes for gas boilers and the like. It's also looking at how we then develop our understanding of how we might use hydrogen. And the energy security paper began to talk about using surplus renewable energy as the cheapest way in which to make hydrogen for its own uses in energy and elsewhere in the economy. And then it is also looking at, in the longer term horizon, at how we might have a framework for nuclear fusion development, technical development of that, beginning to come quite excitingly at at, at Harwell and Cullum at the moment, but also then the legal framework with the national grid losing its control to a new future systems operator of the management of the grid uh, and overall transmission while it actually deals with the delivery of the grid. And this would be a freestanding body dealing with these very, very big issues that we have to tackle over the coming years. It's a real constraint on developing renewable energy um, to get it connected to go anywhere. People people have got wind farms, they've got solar farms, and being told that they can't connect till the end of the decade. That is an enormous frustration, not just for those developers and their investors, but actually on meeting government targets. It is one of the major obstacles of renewable energy projects is access uh, and connectivity to to the grid. Um, There's also talk of a non-domestic rating bill. Anything particular there in relation to the professional work of members? 
I think this really tell is the legislative vehicle for things that we knew were coming anyway. Uh, the we've learnt over the cycle of property values over the last decade and more that five and seven year revaluations are too far apart, and the shock on rateable values as the economy moves between sectors and between regions is simply too great over that time and creates many problems. So this will put three year revaluations on a statutory basis. We're expecting that anyway. Uh, the valuation office agency is the responsible body, will then be relying very heavily on uh, electronic use of all the data that it has to drive the valuation process. Uh, there look to be further restrictions on the ability to appeal against valuations and some uh, exemption where uh, business property is improved on particularly where it creates its own renewable uh, energy generation facility, as with solar panels on its roof or whatever else it might be. Uh, so it's it, it, it's a housekeeping bill, doing things that we needed anyway. By revaluing properties more swiftly, it will then perhaps ease the shocks of valuation movements. But what we will see for members is that Rating now is not simply something that happens in urban areas. Many activities, as farms and estates diversify, as new activities come into the countryside, are rateable and fall outside the historic rate reliefs that agriculture and, and, and can have. And so that's work. It's valuation work. It is essentially a version of a rent review. And that is work that members should be able to do. In the last revaluation, we saw major issues for solar farms and for wind turbines. Uh, renewable energy is uh, still a big issue for hydro, hydro generation. Uh, particular issues for livestock markets. Uh, all of this is work that members can do. Next, I'd like to turn our attention to the Brexit Freedoms Bill. This is the government's uh, uh, plan to seize the opportunities uh, of the UK's departure from the European Union. Um, how ambitious do you think this bill could be? It's very much a framework bill. It gives powers, and the real test will be how powers are used. We have obviously inherited from the EU for continuity's purpose and practicality in business an enormous raft, some would say 80,000 pages of legislation, much of which still, still binds and much of which is not necessarily written for circumstances in the United Kingdom. And this bill proposes the powers to make it easier to change it so that it can be done more by regulation, less by um, primary act of parliament, uh, just to ease the processes around all that for ministers down the line. So this is an enabling bill. It doesn't come forward, as we expect, with specific measures, but to make life easier. And on the other side, it also looks at legal interpretation so that it again asserts the sovereignty of Parliament by looking at retained EU law that Parliament had not considered, giving it a lower stand standing when cases come to be heard in the courts. So significant as a tool, we wait to see how it will be used. And one of the opportunities of Brexit is to uh, have the freedom to explore different regulations around genetic technology, and that was the feature of one of the bills. Yes, this is very specific and very much agricultural and scientific, and it rather illustrates the point that the area of policy that has most led 
on developing since Brexit has been around agriculture and the environment. Uh, we have had the Agriculture Act, we've had the Environment Act, we've had, we're currently dealing with a shoal of consultations around environmental policy, we're developing the new agricultural schemes. Now, this is an area of energetic post-Brexit work, and as part of it, we will have the Genetic Technology Precision Breeding Bill. This is specifically at this point for England, and what it does is it builds on a recent statutory instrument and consultations quite recently, and opens up the prospect, not just of further research in this area, in which we've been, we've been a strong country, but actually beginning to move towards, so that, that research can move towards the market, earn its keep, get investment, and build the United Kingdom as a global centre in this area, as with other life sciences. So this is about gene editing. That is adaptations in the gene of a plant or an animal, which could have happened by natural evolution. It is not about genetic modification, which is where genes might be moved between species. So if we take an example, uh, a Scottish Institute has discovered that by switching off one gene in a pig, it dramatically reduces its exposure to a very serious respiratory syndrome. That is very beneficial for its health and welfare. And that is still as much of a pig as it was after that gene has been switched off as it was before. And so with the research within established legislative frameworks, that is given a greater go-ahead by, by this bill, but also it paves the way first for plants and seeds to move into commercial production and marketing, and then for animals after there's been a, an agreed declaration on animal welfare. It also looks at a light-touch regime for genetically modified food and fodder to come forward um, clearly, Europe already imports large volumes of genetically modified soya and the rest. This is now looking at it uh, much more within uh, the UK market, but again, with an eye to Britain's place in the world as a scientific life sciences power, uh, attracting investment, high quality jobs, but also with the benefits to agriculture. If you can, by genetic editing, make crops more, more disease resistant or less disease susceptible, or you can assist their absorption of nitrogen from bacteria rather than from fertilizer, or you can increase the starch fraction of an ear of grain, and it's still the same crop that it was before, then that is a very significant potential bonus with all the challenges that we now see about the world's food markets and with climate change. And what about the economic crime bill? Is there anything in particular you'd like to pick out from that? Yes, this is an area where we have had a growing volume of legislation. It links to anti-money laundering legislation. It links to actions on the G7 over uh, drug running and gun running and the recycling of monies from crime. Uh, we had some immediate responses built around uh, Russian money, uh, on the back of the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, this now is a more considered measure coming forward. And it's something where the property sector does need to be aware of the pressure. Uh, money does come into to property from uncertain, uncertain quarters. And there are strong regimes that require it to be reported. So this, this at one level, is simply taking that further forward. But there are quite specific points in this bill around the verification of who company directors are 
and imposing on companies' house a much greater requirement to check the information that it's given about companies. At the moment, it's subject to quite a lot of criticism for being slow in managing data, for not really checking the data that it uses. Uh, All this, though, will give more transparency. It will give more authority and certainty to the data, but it will also add much more tedium to the processes of managing a limited company, uh, or at least one to which these rules are going to apply. And so it's this is going to come to bear on uh, perhaps many businesses that are structured as companies uh, or, or where companies are active as clients, particularly, obviously, in our world in the agricultural and, and property markets. So it's worth watching what could be quite a regulatory burden, even though it may bring uh, other other larger public policy benefits. And finally, there's talk of the Animal Welfare Bill. This is simply returning because it uh, failed to complete its stages in the last session. Uh, anything particular you want to talk about in, in that in that bill? Well, I think really we just see, I think, three bills now that are brought forward from the last session. The Animal, the animal Welfare Kept Animals Bill. Uh, there, there's a lot of headline rhetoric around the banning of live exports across water for uh, fattening or slaughter. It doesn't really affect very many animals at all, um, and it doesn't touch on the trade across the Irish border, uh, but but this will come through, and it's part, again, of a response to, to the animal welfare uh, concerns of the government. There are measures in there to reinforce powers over dogs worrying livestock, uh, which is welcomed by the farming community. Uh, other bills that are carried forward include the Product Security and Telecommunications Infrastructure Bill, Uh, part of which is to remove uh, or aid the removal of Chinese materials from our electronic facilities. Uh, But the bit that directly concerns members are the changes that are proposed to the Electronic Communications Code, uh, which we've discussed in other podcasts, uh, and that now comes back round again to continue its parliamentary stages. And we also have the high-speed rail bill now from Crude to Manchester coming back uh, with both the planning permission and compulsory purchase aspects of that project, but also something larger about the regulation of HS2 as a railway. So those are three bills that will have particular and direct effects on members or on clients, uh, just just to watch as as they come through. Uh, Other legislation will pick up on the um, enactment of the free trade agreements with New Zealand and Australia. Uh, possibly some interesting points around public procurement uh, aimed to ease it for small businesses and possibly interesting, therefore, where we look at food procurement by public authorities and local government. Again, wait to see the detail of that before seeing anything in this, but that may may open up opportunities. Uh, electronic documents for trade to be put on the same per- basis as trade as paper, electronic documents for trade to be put on the same basis as paper documents. Again, let's just see where that goes, but it's to ease costs, reform of a data protection regime. Now, all this is stuff to keep a lot of detail, a lot of MPs very busy over over the coming 12 months. Certainly, there's a lot to get through uh, over the coming year in what is a very ambitious uh, programme for legislation. Uh, Members of the CAAV can, of course, gain access to a detailed briefing note with all the key points from the Queen's speech. It's available on the CAAV website. Well, Jeremy Moody, Secretary and Advisor to the CAAV, thank you once again for joining this podcast. 
And there we are. We've reached the end of yet another episode of the CAAV podcast. If you want to keep up to date with all future episodes or indeed catch up on previous ones, please head to our website or you can subscribe for free on whichever platform you use. Also, if you've got any feedback or ideas for future episodes, please get in touch by sending us an email to inquire at caav.org.uk. But that's it for today. Until the next time, thank you very much for listening and bye for now.